thought I was in Genesis 36. I am. But Genesis 36, it simply chronicles Esau and his descendants. And this will be the quickest chapter I've ever covered, probably. I'm only going to mention... If you want to read this chapter, you read it on your own time. It's this begat and that begat and and so forth and so on. But in verse 2, to show you that the South, and in particular Alabama, is of God's heart, you have a mention of a holy Bama. That's one of Esau's wives. Now, you might say a holy Bama, but it's a holy Bama. And uh, we see that Esau took a southern wife, so that was good. But read chapter 36 if uh, Esau and his descendants, if they interest you. But the chapter, in essence, it talks about how God has blessed Esau. Uh, Esau now moves out of uh, Canaan. He takes his flocks, he takes his herds and his family, and they move across the Jordan River uh, And that's where they're going to settle down. But don't miss that Esau is greatly blessed of God. His herds, his flocks, they number uh, so tremendous that he can't even share the land of Canaan with his brother Jacob. So he moves to the Jordan area. And God has blessed Esau with great riches. Tremendous wealth, and this is all that Esau ever wanted from God, was the material blessings. And Esau, he is blessed with that. Sometimes, as Christians, we can, if we're not careful, become envious of the wealth and ease of life of non-believers. You ever you know non-believers and everything just so real good for them? But in this passage, in chapter 36 there, we cannot help but notice God allowing, even blessing, those that do not know him. We, we see this, and it appears that these, this non-believer in particular, Esau, has a life of ease. He has a life of blessing. And yet Jacob seems to go through all the troubles. And that's, that's kind of the way I think we look upon it sometimes. We look at all the things that we go through, uh, the financial times of testings. And all the while God is desiring us to get to know him in a better, in a more trusting way uh, where we must exhibit our faith. We never get away from showing our faith. Because God wants us to show faith, because without faith, it's impossible to please him. So he takes us into circumstances where we must exhibit faith. As Christians, we are simply a work in progress. And when God deals with our finances, and he has in mine, and I'm sure he has in yours, uh, I think it's one of the kindest ways that God can deal with you. I would much rather have God 
take me through money problems than health problems. You ever think about that? Or relationship problems, maybe with your children or loved ones or something like that. And to appreciate God's goodness, all I have to do is come down with the flu. I can get the flu, and all of a sudden, I would give anything I own just to feel good again. You know what I'm saying? And as parents, sometimes we look upon our children that get sick, and they do get sick occasionally. And have you ever held your sick child and said, God, if possible, put this sickness on me, but touch my child and heal my child? And it's a difficult thing to see a child suffer in sickness. Therefore, when we see God bless unbelievers with health and wealth and ease of life, understand that God, through his loving kindness, is giving that unbeliever temporary happiness and prosperity. But as a Christian, God is working with us concerning eternal life. And to prepare us for eternal life, guess what? He's got to knock off some of the rough edges, <laughs> especially in you folks. But Esau is very prosperous, but so is Jacob. Jacob is a wealthy man also. So I want us to... Turn over to Luke 16, and that's where we'll be taking our text from this morning. And we're going to read about a rich man who prospered greatly. And we're also going to read about a beggar that sat at his gate. So Luke 16, and understand this is not a parable. A parable is a story, some that illustrates a point. You lay it alongside of a truth, and thus it has its name, a parable. But in this teaching, in Jesus' teaching on stewardship, he names names. No other parable do you have Jesus naming names. We have the rich man and we have Lazarus. So notice this as we read through the passage. Luke 16, and we'll pick up in verse 19. And go through 31. There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. So it was that the beggar died and was carried by angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Then he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted, and you are tormented. 
And besides all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed, so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. Then he said, I beg you, therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers, that they may testify to them, unless they come to this place of torment. And Abraham said to him, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. One of the most tragic stories in all of the Bible. First thing we read, though, is the rich man, he fared sumptuously. Now, that's a word we don't use very often, but it describes his lifestyle. Every day was holiday for the rich man. He lived a glorious life. He feasted on gourmet food. He strolled around in his palace in tailored clothes. He did not have a media room. We think we're big stuff if we have a media room now. But it was common practice in those days, if you were wealthy, you brought entertainment into your home. He no doubt brought the entertainment right into his house. And the rich man, he lived a life of ease and pleasure. And he probably lived that life for a lot of years. And each day that he would leave his mansion, his little palace, he would pass by Lazarus, the beggar that was laid at his gate. Now, we have to take note of this. The rich man is not condemned for his riches. That didn't make him a good guy or a bad guy. He is condemned for passing by Lazarus, a man who's in a lot of need and doing nothing to ease Lazarus's suffering. Like it or not, with wealth comes responsibility. And we have to understand that. This is a teaching by Jesus on stewardship. Now, most of us in America, we have been blessed by God to the point of excess. All of us have more things than we need. Now we have a responsibility before God then to be a faithful steward of that excess or anything be beyond what is needed. It's also interesting to note that Lazarus is not automatically saved because he's poor. Being poor does not save you. Being poor does not give you a right standing with God. Uh, but poverty and illness, sometimes we look upon as, you know, good things because they drive us to God. But poor, being poor does not equal righteousness or salvation. You can be dead broke and go to hell. <laughs> but we're told about the... Uh, Lazarus, how the 
dogs would come and lick his sores. Now, dogs in Scripture are unclean animals. And they would come and they would lick Lazarus's sores, meaning he was in a lot of misery, a lot of diseases and so forth. Uh, dogs in America, in the civilized world, you might say, are looked upon a whole lot differently than dogs are looked upon in third world nations. You go into some of the poor countries and people put up any kind of makeshift fence they can to keep out the wild packs of dogs. You don't want dogs around you in poor nations. But today in America, we see pet food commercials where dog owners are having a good old time with Rover and Rover is licking their face and even licking them in the mouth and all this. And all I can say to you, I have a dog but he better not be licking me in the face. <laughs> Back to the rich man and Lazarus. I just offended anybody that's got a pet. So, both of these men die. Rich man and Lazarus. But rich or poor, death comes to each and every one of us. Both of these men die. Lazarus is carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. Now, to a Jew, and that's who Jesus is talking to, Abraham's bosom was a place of bliss or even heaven, okay? It says angels, that's plural, more than one. God's messengers are given the responsibility of escorting Lazarus to heaven. The dead man is buried. As believers, when we die, we're not left as wandering souls. There are some denominations that teach soul sleep uh, for believers, uh, it's just not scriptural. Uh, but we are carried by angels to God's place of comfort. That doesn't apply to non-believers. They're buried. In the Gospel of John, and I, whenever I do a funeral, I make sure I always read this verse. In the Gospel of John, it says, to be absent from the body is to be present with Christ. That is a comfort that a believer has. It's a great comfort, and it's a great promise. And unbelievers do not have that promise. It only says the rich man died, and they buried him. And then next we pick it up, and he, he is in torments. Not singular. Again, that's plural. He is in torments. In Hades, in Sheol, or a place of permanence, the grave, hell itself. Death is final in this regard. When our body dies, the opportunity for a changed heart, an opportunity to turn away or turn from something has passed. There's no going back. There's no second chances. 
There's no second chance of repentance after death. Sorry, purgatory is also <laughs> a myth, if you want to say so. Uh, there's no coming back from the grave. It's interesting for us to look also that the rich man still has all of his thinking facilities about himself. He still has all the senses that we have. Uh, we would call it he has the presence of mind and he has feelings. And the rich man is able to see Abraham afar off. He sees Lazarus there with him. And, and scripture just talks about it being at a great distance. And the rich man, he's a Jew, and he calls out to Father Abraham. He pleads for Abraham to have Lazarus dip a finger in water and cool his tongue. And he says, for I am tormented in this flame. That's pretty straightforward. You can't make that an allegory. That's a straightforward statement. This rich man, he doesn't have a body anymore of a flesh and bone and so forth that we know of. But regardless, he is still tormented in flame. He's in his eternal body, but he is being tormented by flame of fire. He's also tormented by the separation from Abraham's bosom. He knows he cannot go to Father Abraham. He knows that the place of comfort and bliss that Lazarus enjoys, he cannot enjoy. Now, there's no indication that Lazarus can see the rich man. What a blessing that is. When we're in heaven, we will not be able to look upon those that are suffering in hell. Because there's this great gulf of separation that is there. That no one can pass from one side to the other. And it's like uh, one of those gigantic one-way mirrors. You can see through it, but you can't see back. <laughs> and part of the torment in Hades is that he can see the comfort of this beggar that used to sit at his gate. And that is torment. There is also mental torment for this rich man. Because Abraham says, son, remember. Oh, my. The rich man still has remembrance. Remember. This, perhaps, I think, is the greatest torment of Hades, of hell, is that those there will be able to remember their life. Today in Hades, those who are trapped there, they are tormented by their memory. They're tormented by thinking back of all the opportunities that they had to repent, to turn from their life of sin and turn to their Savior, Jesus Christ, and they did not turn. Now we have regrets. I don't think there's anyone here that can say they've lived a life of no regrets. We have what we call missed opportunities. I know I've had a lot of missed opportunities for investments. 
not willing to take a chance, not willing to whatever, and some of those you regret. You have perhaps missed an opportunity for an education, or you've missed some other worthy cause that has been presented to you. And we know what it's like to have regrets. But you know the story of the rich young ruler who came to Jesus and said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And he went away sad because he was not willing to sell his possessions and go and follow Jesus. Now consider for a moment the regrets of that rich young man. He's had two millenniums to consider why he did not follow Jesus when Jesus asked him to. Those are regrets. Back to the story of the rich man and Lazarus. Abraham tells the rich man, remember in your life you received good things. Likewise, Lazarus received evil things. But now, and that's what eternity is, it's the ever-present now, Lazarus is comforted and you are tormented. And then it dawns on the rich man. He comes to the realization that he cannot escape where he is. There's no getting out of there. And so he makes a request of Abraham. And it's almost a noble request. And he says, I beg you, Father Abraham, that you would send Lazarus to my father's house to my relatives. Send him to my five brothers and testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. This rich man, we know that he's unloving just by the way he treated Lazarus. He's rich, he's callous, but now he shows great compassion for his brothers that are still alive. It also tells us that this is not just another parable, but this is a true story because he says, you're five brothers. He's talking about his family. And once the rich man understands the permanence of his situation, he pleads for the life of his brothers. The reality of hell and the rich man being in torments has forced him to consider others. As Christians, as believers, the reality of hell, when you really think on it, causes you and I to be a witness, to be a testimony to our neighbors. It causes us to talk to people about unpleasant things, about dying and going to hell. And the finality, the permanence of hell has hit the rich man hard. And this story is very tragic. It's disturbing. Have you ever stopped and thought about hell? It'll disturb you. 
It's almost like I wish it wasn't in Scripture, but it is. The truth of hell is real. Sometimes I think we're allowed to make decisions while in this life that are too great for us to make. And one of those is the rejection or the acceptance of Jesus Christ. What a decision that we as mortals are given. But Abraham, he answers the rich man and he says, Lazarus cannot come to you. And he will not return back to earth. But your brothers and all the rest of humanity, they have Moses representing the law. And they have the prophets. They have men who speak forth for God. And he says, let your brothers and let all of humanity hear them. The rich man says, no, Father Abraham. For I did not listen, and neither will my brothers. But if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. The rich man realizes that he needed to repent while he was still alive. But he didn't. He also realizes that his brothers and anyone else, they need to repent while the opportunity is there to repent. And that's something we need to realize. We need to be, if nothing else, warning those around us that hell is real. You may not believe in it, but that doesn't change the reality of it. And it's eternal and it's permanent. Now, we live in a world that shuns the truth of heaven and hell. Some of the things we hear spoken of of heaven, I, and I do funerals occasionally, and, and I just I go, what are you thinking? <laughs> you know, uh, when I get up there, old Joe and I, we're going to have a cup of coffee, he and I. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but, you know, these images that people have of heaven and hell are just that, they're concocted images of man and sometimes we even hear people joke about going to hell well it's just going to be a big party there you know a giant kegger I, I think I'd rather go to hell than heaven anyway <laughs> yeah there is absolutely nothing flattering or glamorous about hell it is a place of of torments. The rich man's argument seems logical, though. He wants Abraham to send his uh, Lazarus back, and he thinks that if someone goes back from the dead, surely his brothers, and surely mankind for that matter, they will repent and listen to this person. But Abraham gives a stunning rebuttal of that and of that thinking and of that logic and it says if they do not hear Moses and the prophets neither will they be persuaded though one rise from the dead now of course you and I know that Jesus came and he suffered the 
cross. He died, was buried, lay in the grave three days, rose again, and yet only a few there are who accept the work of Jesus and that he is God. So what does mankind do with this truth? Well, let me read you Jesus' words. And they're in Matthew 7, verse 13 and 14. Jesus says, Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it. Many go the broad way to destruction. Because, the, because narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way which leads to life. And there are few who find it. If you're here this morning and you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are in the minority. It's that simple, even here in the Bible Belt. <laughs> The way to eternal life is only found by a few according to Jesus. Because it's difficult in our logical thinking. It's difficult for us to consider and apply a man's death 2,000 years ago that it has any effect upon me today 2,000 years later. The death and resurrection of Jesus for many people appears as nothing but foolishness. But here's what Jesus said about it. The cross and the resurrection is the wisdom and goodness of God to mankind. Isn't it amazing? The difference in opinions. Now I'm speaking to a room full of what I consider believers. I think most of you have accepted the work of Jesus on the cross, and I think most of you have eternal life, and I'm glad of that. But if there's anyone here who has not repented of their sins and turned to Christ, the only one that can give you eternal life, let me urge you to make that decision before you find yourself in a place or in a position where that opportunity has passed you by. And I'm not trying to be overdramatic, but I never want anyone that comes to our fellowship, Calvary Chapel here of Madison, and go away without eternal life. I want all to know Jesus as Savior. So with everything in me, I urge you, consider repentance, consider turning to Christ while there is still the opportunity to do so. Because it is appointed unto man to once die. Death comes to each and every one of us. And we'll have men and women back in the prayer area who would be delighted to pray with you about your eternity or any other need that you may have in your life. Take advantage of that. Turn to Jesus while the opportunity is there to turn to him. Amen? Amen. Let me get you to stand. We'll close in prayer.
Father God, I thank you, first of all, for eternal life. I thank you for eternal life for these, your people. Lord, you've took the sting out of death. We look upon you as our substitution. Thank you for going to the cross, Jesus. Thank you for making salvation available to us. And thank you, Lord, for putting in a heart within us that believes in you. And we, we're just, we'll, we'll praise you throughout eternity for this, Lord. But, Lord, for anyone else, I pray that you would work on their heart, work on their conscience by your spirit, Lord, drawing them to yourself. Do a great work here in the hearts and lives of, of men and women, Lord. Cause them to see the truth of you. And we thank you for the truth of yourself, Jesus. And we pray in your name. Amen.